Hi, everyone, and welcome to Great Spoon Online. My name is William, and I'm so glad that you can join us today. Well, we are continuing on with our series through David's contact list. Uh, last week, we took a look at David's relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah, one of his trusted generals. And if you were there, you'll remember that we talked about the ingredients that might lead us to sin, as well as some things that we can do to help us avoid them. Well, today, we will take a look at a not-so-well-known character in the Bible. His name is Mephibosheth, and I hope that this message reveals for you a picture of God's grace. Pastor Timothy from our church in Fairfax will be giving the message today. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. He started off well enough, but over time he became proud and self-centered. He began to view the kingship of Israel as something to hold on to, rather than as a position that God had entrusted to him. Because of that, Saul viewed David, one of his most loyal warriors, as a threat and tried to kill him. Saul's son Jonathan, however, was very different. He recognized within David a zeal for God that made him bond immediately with him. And even though Jonathan himself was next in line to the throne, he wholeheartedly supported David as the next king of Israel. Eventually, God would judge Saul, and in one big battle, Saul and three of his sons were killed, including Jonathan. After Saul's death, David becomes king over Israel. Let's read now what David does after his kingdom is established. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1 and on. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The Bible's first mention of Mephibosheth is in 2 Samuel chapter 4. The context is that Saul and Jonathan had just been killed in battle. As we read in 2 Samuel 4, these words, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now many years later, as we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 9, 
Mephibosheth is in an obscure town called Lodabar. The name Lodabar means literally not a pasture. In other words, there's nothing there. It's middle of nowhere. And it must have been a pretty sad place to live at. So why would Mephibosheth, grandson of a former king, choose to live in a place like Lodabar? Well, it's precisely because he was the grandson of the former king. Back in that culture, when a new king rose to power, it was common practice to wipe out the relatives of the former king. That would be one way that he can preempt any potential threat to his power by eliminating those who might support a rival king. It's kind of like the situation in Afghanistan when the American forces withdrew last year. Anyone who had supported U.S. forces while they were there were all of a sudden in grave danger. Everyone knew that when the Taliban government took over, they would seek revenge and eliminate anyone who supported the opposing side. So Mephibosheth was carried to Lodabar by his nurse and continued to live there well into his adulthood, hoping to fly under the radar of King David. It would not have been an exciting or glamorous life, but at least he was safe. And if you think about Mephibosheth, it's not like he had great expectations about his future. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He thought he was a wanted man by King David, the ruling king. So lame and in Lodabar would have been an apt description of his life. His dull but tranquil life came to an end one day, however, when his worst nightmare became a reality. One day, a group of soldiers, who he could tell are David's men, show up and knock loudly at his door. Who is it? We're King David's soldiers. We're here to find Mephibosheth and take him to the king. How did they find him after all these years? There's nothing he could have done at that point. It would have been futile to try and fight against them. He cannot even try to run away since he's lame in both feet. He has no choice but to go with them. And his highest hope at this point is that his end will come quickly and painlessly as possible. So after a day or two of traveling, Mephibosheth arrives in Jerusalem and he's immediately rushed into David's presence. For David had made it clear to his soldiers that this was an urgent matter. When David first sees Mephibosheth, the son of his best friend who had been so loyal and so kind to him, David can't help but cry out, Mephibosheth! And of course at this point, Mephibosheth doesn't know what words will come out of David's mouth next. Perhaps it will be, I pronounce you to 20 years of hard labor, or you have one last meal before I send the executioner to behead you. But something in the way that David called out his name must have confused Mephibosheth. His tone certainly didn't fit the words of condemnation that he expected to hear. Mephibosheth must have doubted his own ears, his own eyes. Could it really be that David was extending him a warm welcome? And could it be that there was unbridled joy and gladness in David's voice? Then we read the words that did come out of David's mouth in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What? Was he in a dream? Was this really happening? It's like a guilty criminal who had already been found guilty by the jury going to court to hear the judge pronounce his sentence. He's expecting the worst, and then being told that the president had pardoned him and wants to give him a cabinet position instead of sending him away to jail for a lifetime. Talk about undeserved generosity and unmerited favor. This is what the Bible calls grace. In a way, what Mephibosheth experiences from David 
is a picture of what we all experience from God through the gospel. It almost seems too good to be true. As Tim Keller puts it, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And that sense of awe, wonder, and incredulity of what just happened, that incredulity that Mephibosheth must have experienced becomes our experience too. That's what the gospel is all about. And if you don't go through the struggle of wondering, can this really be true? And if you don't wonder at how amazing God's grace is, then you might not fully understand how much grace we're talking about here. And perhaps it's because you do not fully understand the depth of your own sinfulness and guilt before a holy God or because you overestimate your own goodness. Here in this obscure story in the Bible, we see a clear picture of the gospel. Similar to Mephibosheth, we also were in a position where we fully expected to be condemned. So we braced ourselves to hear the announcement, guilty, and then to hear the sentence that we knew we fully deserved. But then, instead of the pounding of the gavel and God saying, guilty is charged, I now banish you, God says, you are guilty, but you are forgiven. You are set free because my son has paid the full penalty of your sins. In Luke 13, Jesus likens heaven to being seated at a large banquet table where people from the east and west, north and south, all gather to sit at God's banquet table. And I think that on that day, I will feel like what Mephibosheth must have felt every time he sat at King David's table for a meal. Because it's not just King David and Mephibosheth who are seated there, of course, but all of David's children must have been there too. And they're all royalty. And based upon their description in the Bible, they're all handsome and beautiful. In fact, they all look like Hollywood actors and actresses. And there is Mephibosheth as he makes his way into the dining room. Even before they spot him, the people can tell that it's him by the loud noises his crutches make on the floor. And when he finally gets to the table, King David smiles and welcomes him and directs him to sit down at one of the chairs and says, Welcome, you belong here. And each time, Mephibosheth must have wondered to himself, how is it that I'm sitting here at the king's table along with all of these princes and princesses? And I think at that moment, Mephibosheth would know it's all by grace because clearly he did not earn or deserve a spot at that table. And yet, I can imagine it being perhaps difficult after some time to fully just rest in this grace and acceptance. Looking around, I wonder if perhaps after a few months at the king's table, Mephibosheth might have been tempted to try and earn his spot at the table. He begins to look around and compare himself to others who are sitting there at the king's table and try to compete with them. So he grows out his hair, hoping that he would look like Absalom with impressive flowing hair. Or he starts to try reading a lot of books so he can catch up to being learned and wise like Solomon. That would be so pathetic if he did that, right? Because no matter how hard he tried, he would never be able to compete against the likes of Absalom or Solomon if he tried to earn his spot at the table. And if he were to attempt to do so, he would have been so off because that would have been really unnecessary. After all, 
He belonged at the king's table because the king himself declared, You are welcome. You belong here. And not because his hair weighed a certain number of pounds or because he read an X number of books. I think we too can be tempted to earn our spot at the table of the king. When we first became Christians, we might be happy enough just knowing that we are there purely based upon God's grace. But after a while, we might find it humiliating to continue to being accepted by God's grace alone. And we might decide that we want to earn our spot, at least compared to other Christians who are seated around the table. So what are some ways that you feel unworthy of God's grace? What are some ways in which you resist being accepted by God's grace, and so you tell yourself things like, I don't belong here, or, well, if I'm going to stay here, I have to earn my keep. So there is this challenge to continue to rest in God's grace and continue to remain in a posture where I know that I'm accepted by grace alone. The way that Mephibosheth could have overcome his insecurities is by reminding himself that David is the one who said, you belong here. And likewise for us, the way to deal with our voices of insecurity that keep accusing us, you don't belong here, you're not as good as others around here, is not by trying to work hard and trying to be this awesome Christian. That is going to be a tiring and losing game because you will never be good enough to earn your way to God's favor. How we can overcome our insecurities is by dwelling on the words of God the Father, who says to us, you belong here. It is by allowing Jesus' voice to speak louder than our insecurities and allowing us to rest in God's voice saying, You belong here. You belong not because of what you have done, but because of what my Son has done. It's to have faith and rest in God's declaration of His love for us in His Word. 1 John 3 verse 1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Now this text ends with an interesting statement in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The wording of this last sentence highlights David's grace. And Mephibosheth's lameness is no longer a source of his shame. It is no longer something that he feels the need to hide. But instead, his lameness becomes that part of him that only magnifies and accentuates the grace that he's received from David. And he knows that he went from lame and at Lodabar to lame and loved sheerly by the grace of God. So for us too, we no longer need to try to hide our lameness. We all know that we don't work right. Our character is poor. Our track record of saying no to sin is checkered at best. And in so many ways, we fail to obey even the most basic commands of God, like to love God and love others. But thank God for the gospel, because through what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God says, Welcome, child. You belong here. So as it turns out, the tale of Mephibosheth is a tale that represents all our stories. And it's a tale that strikes us being too good to be true, except, as Frederick Buechner says, it is a tale that is too good to not be true. As I mentioned already, had David acted like the typical king, he could have chosen to just wipe out all of the surviving members of Saul's family. That would be one strategic way to cement his power 
and his position as undisputed ruler. But of course, David is not the typical king. Instead of wanting to wipe out Saul's descendants, David wants to show kindness to them, especially for the sake of his friend Jonathan. Now, Jonathan had been a very unusual and gracious friend to him. By birth, he was next in line to the throne. But when David showed up and proved himself to be a man after God's own heart, Jonathan threw his support 100% behind him, even to the point that it it enraged his father Saul, who wanted to give the throne to Jonathan. So as David sits on the throne after Saul's death, he knows that part of how he got to where he was was because he too received grace. He received grace from Jonathan, who protected and defended David even at the risk of his own life and at the cost of ruining his relationship with his father Saul. So this story, as it turns out, is a tale of two people who received grace, David and Mephibosheth. And David wanted to be gracious because he knew that Jonathan had been gracious to him. So as he sits on the throne of Israel, David is not wondering to himself, how can I enjoy the perks and advantages of being the king of Israel? Instead, he asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's response is appropriate, and we should have this kind of response in light of the grace that we have received from God as well. As Christians, despite our lameness and sins, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And it's only fitting and apt that we ask that same question as David. Is there anyone I can show kindness to for Jesus' sake? So what are some ways that you can apply this message? Perhaps one way is the next time that you go out to flyer for a Bible study or for a special talk. And as you go out and scan the students who are on campus, you can ask yourself this question at the back of your mind. Among this crowd, is there anyone I can fly to and show kindness to them for the sake of Jesus? Given the grace that we have received, we cannot just sit here and enjoy the blessings of our salvation while the rest of the world is headed for eternity without God. So let's be like David and do our best to go out and find all those to whom we can show kindness to for the sake of Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Timothy, for that message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for a picture of grace that you have given to not just Mephibosheth, but to all of us. Uh, Father, you uh, prepared a wonderful table for us in which you look upon us and you extend your grace, the covering that covers over our lameness so that we can be received by you and accepted. Uh, Thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross, that his blood may cover our sins, that we could fellowship with you and receive from you uh, the unmerited blessings that you wish to shower upon us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that's our message for today. Thanks for joining us, and I'll see you next week.